0: Well, it's good to see you guys, those joining online and those of you here for uh, the next session in our series on The Bible Speaks. And this is an investigation of a biblical view on politics in general. And we're spending a lot of time on this because I knew this would be hard to change our frame of reference a little bit. And I'm not saying that everything we think about politics is wrong. and I'm just saying I would like for us to just step back and take an objective view of how we're approaching the whole genre of politics. And again, I think that's a good thing for us to do at any given time because typically, the pressures of the secular society will tend to pull us off. And it's good to step back and say, look, let's go back to the Bible and see you know, what, what's our biblical approach to these things. So that's what we are doing. So let me open with a prayer and then we're gonna jump right in. This, This is one of my favorite lessons in this regard. I think there's a lot to be learned out of this. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the freedoms that we have to gather, to teach your word, to study your word, to speak your word, even if sometimes it's not well received in the public square. I thank you that we have the freedom to speak those words. Lord, we don't take that for granted. We know that's not the case for probably most of the people in the world right now and certainly not for most of the people who have come before us. So we're grateful to you, Lord, and pray that you would give us wisdom, you'd give us courage, that we might speak the truth and we might do it in a loving way. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's our number for questions. So you can text questions in uh, during class, try to answer as many of those as we can. So we're going to talk about politics, and in this particular uh, lesson, what I'd like to do is look at. We're talking about a theme of the early Christians living by the Spirit, and you say, "Well, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with your political stances?" And it turns out that if you're going to play a different game, which is what we, I claim, that Christians are are called to do, what Christ Himself did, He. He used the same game board pieces. I mean, we're operating in the world just like everyone else, but he's playing a little different game and he had a little different goal. And we're called to different hopes, different purposes, and different goals than the secular societies around us. And that's been true for 2000 years. So if we're going to do that, then what's our guide for that? This is a scripture that I quoted to you and gave you the backstory for it. So I won't go through the backstory again, but this is, oh, in the sixth century BC, this is the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. And he's talking about a time when the Jews had zero political power and it was unlikely that they would achieve their goals. And here's what the Lord said to their leader. The Jewish leader was named Zerubbabel. He said, this is the war to the Lord, to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. In the realm of politics, we've talked about politics by its very nature uses the power of coercion. And I don't say that entirely negatively. It is the power to coerce. And it's a power that in our society, this isn't true in everybody's government, that citizens have given to the government a certain amount of power so that the polis, P-O-L-I-S, the Greek word that we get politics from, the community of people trying to live together can do so in a harmonious and flourishing way. And to do that, we give some power to the government so they can exercise that power. The government primarily exercises power through coercion. In other words, you could be arrested, you could be fined, you could get a speeding ticket, you could, in other words, these are generally speaking coercive ways of working. But God said to his people, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. The transformative power of the spirit is how we operate. And so what I'd like to do in this lesson is I want to go back and look at Jesus, and I want to look at the early church in the book of Acts, we can go on into history if we want, but I'd like to stay in the biblical record largely and say how did the early church interact with governments of the time being led by the spirit? What are some lessons we can learn to apply to our lives from how the early church operated, okay? First thing, first principle is we are called to be in the world but not of the world. And that idea comes from this passage. This is John chapter 15. What's happening in John 15, this is Jesus speaking. He is speaking on the evening before he's gonna be crucified the next day. So there's like three chapters worth. There's a long teaching that happened that night. Think Last Supper, think going up to the Garden of Gethsemane. But during all that time, Jesus is teaching to his disciples and to us. He said this, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. In other words, you will have conflict with secular societies throughout history, and that's been true. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, but as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world." That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So the point is you've been chosen out of the world and yet we are living in this world. And this is another way of saying we are playing with the same game pieces, but we are playing a different game. And that's the idea of being in the world, but not of the world. The temptation and the danger for Christians individually and the church as a whole being in the world is to be pulled by the uh, cultures, by the various governments, by, whether it's by pressure or it's by enticement, being tempted to be conformed to the world. Romans 12, 2, Paul says to the Christians in Rome, he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, he said, don't start playing that game that they're playing. Maybe that's another way to use our analogy to say it. And the danger of doing so, of being pulled too close to the world, of starting to play the world's game, Jesus talked about that in this parable. I'm just telling you the tail end of this parable because I think most people know it. You can read it in Matthew chapter 13. He's telling the parable of the sower. And he's talking about a farmer who's sowing seed and, The seed falls in different places and what happens to it? And the disciples said, I don't know why you're teaching us about agriculture, we're fishermen. And he says, God, you guys are so dense. He says, let me tell you what this means. He said, here's what the parable means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, what was that message, by the way? Repent, turn around, because the kingdom of God is here. That calls for you to change the way you're living to go from allegiance to the world, allegiance to self, to allegiance to God. So this is the message of the kingdom. That's what Jesus was preaching. He said, you know, if somebody hears it, sometimes the evil one comes, snatches away what's sown in his heart. In other words, you hear it, you don't, you don't do anything. You don't believe it. You don't buy into it. That's the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places, that's one of the other places he said it could fall, is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since he doesn't have any roots... He only lasts a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. In other words, I believe, but I don't have any roots. I really haven't placed my trust in Christ. I really haven't let the old man die. I really haven't surrendered to the power of spirit to transform me. And consequently, when difficulties come, it's easy for me to abandon that and say, I'm gonna go back to my old allegiances. And that's what he's talking about. But here, is the one that talks about getting enmeshed in the game of the world, in the systems of the world. But the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns, he said, what I mean by that is, that's the person who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it and they make it unfruitful. And then he goes on to talk about the one who receives the seed, hears it, takes root, and bears fruit for Christ. But this is the temptation, is being choked out by the attitudes of the world, the cares of the world, the temptations of wealth. What he's talking about there is the temptation of being in the world is to become more and more like the world. And this is true politically as much as it's true in terms of Our gods, you know, the god of money, fame, fortune, self, whatever, is replacing our allegiance to God with faith or allegiance to some other god. And so the church has wrestled with this throughout all time. And I'd like to take that prism and point it to, okay, then how did the early church, if you just step back and you look at what we know about the early church from the scripture, is what we know about it, what would we say was the relationship of the early church and governments. Tim Keller summarizes this part, and not all Christians would agree with this, would agree with him on this, because some Christians would say we need to withdraw from the world, we should be apolitical, we shouldn't be involved in politics, it's a dirty business, and as my grandmother used to say, if you lie down with the dogs, you're gonna get up with fleas. In other words, they would say, you guys heard that too? Yeah, so, point is, don't get into politics, dirty business, you will be compromised. On the other hand, you have Christians who would say, hey, we've got to engage in politics, we've got to play this game, we've got to mobilize our political clout because, and for oftentimes the very best of intentions, we really need to right this world and we need to provide justice for those who don't have justice and we need to set things up right. Keller's not gonna buy into either one of these things and that's not the way I'm, I'm reading the scriptures either. He says, when the church, in the interest of acquiring political power, aligns too much with the current age's secular left or right. It's true for any country, any time. It is sapped of both spiritual power and credibility with non-Christians. We see the political captivity of the faithful. The solution cannot be some imaginary apolitical withdrawal. Christians must learn to do something new, to engage politically and critically but not capitulate to any of the reigning ideologies in order to truly be salt and light. So what's he saying there? He's saying is you're gonna be in the world, but you're not gonna be of the world. We're we're going to be pursuing God's purposes, which will also result in justice and beauty and truth and freedom, but we will not do it with the ideologies of the world. And that disconnecting from the world is not an option because we are told to be in the world, but not to be of the world. So let's go back and look at some interactions between early believers, we'll start with Jesus at first, because this is one that you don't hear about very often. So this is Jesus, uh, in bow in the middle of his ministry, and there was this tax that Jews had to pay, and it was called a temple tax, and it was paid to the Jewish authorities. This is the government. And so if you wanna be a Jew in good standing, every year you had to pay a tax to the temple Now, this isn't a tithing, this isn't offerings, which the law of Moses called for you to do, those things. This was in addition to that, this was a tax that was levied by the Jewish government, if you will, the Jewish rulers for the people. This was extremely unpopular, and it felt very coercive, felt very much like a government thing. Whereas the law of Moses was God's decree to give to the temple, you would give a 10th of your uh, produce at the beginning. In other words, there were were ways to support the temple, but this kind of went beyond that. It was extremely unpopular. So Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, so they're up in the Sea of Galilee, and the collectors of the two drachma tax, so this is IRS people, okay, came to Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Meaning, are we gonna need to arrest you guys? And Peter says, yes, he does. Peter has no idea. This is the typical Peter, which is ready, fire, aim. You know, that's Peter. And so, of course he does. So then he goes to ask Jesus. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first because Jesus knows what's going on. He said, what do you think, Peter? Simon, his given name. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. Okay, so let me pause right there. Let me tell you what's going on here. Let me just give you the short version. He is saying, Peter, I know that that tax is illogical. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. It's not reasonable. God already provided for the maintenance of the temple and the people would say, look, this is oppressive, this isn't fair, this isn't reasonable. Let me think of a current example. Oh, masks, yes, so no matter whether you think you should wear a mask or you shouldn't wear a mask, this is, I'm not partisan on this, I'm just gonna make this point. Both sides think it is completely unreasonable that I've got a vaccine and now I have to wear a mask. Other side says it is completely unreasonable to think that you can't do something simple like wearing a mask and it might save somebody from getting COVID. Okay, so both sides think this is unreasonable. This is this exact situation. Jesus says, you think that's unreasonable? I think it's unreasonable. Everybody thinks it's unreasonable. He's saying there is, yes, this is clearly not reasonable. But what does he do? But so that we may not offend them, Go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Then you can give it to them for my tax and your tax. Okay, that's how Jesus solves problems, right? It's like, I'm God, taxes are not a problem, okay? But what's he saying? In order not to offend them, that word offend means a little bit different than what you and I think. What it means is in order not to cause unnecessary conflict with them. Well, why is it unnecessary? I'm kind of hot about this, Simon's kind of hot about this. He's like, hey, I do not want to wear this mask. I do not want to pay this tax, right? But what's Jesus' point is like, that's not our mission. Why cause needless conflict over this tax? I'm not giving you, I should not have used the mask thing because now you're gonna say, oh, man, well, we know where Terry stands on max. Okay, my point is simply this. Whether something's reasonable or not isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily our top priority what's he saying he's like no i don't think this is a reasonable tax but you know what we have bigger fish to fry literally right we have something more important to do we have a mission let's not cause needless conflict here just you go get the money pay the tax and let's get on about our business and that is a really good example a lot of times christians complied with things whether they agreed with them or not because they were minor things They were not mission critical things. But there were times when they didn't. Acts chapter four. So now we move forward a little bit in time. The book of Acts, by the way, is called the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Early Disciples, but it ought to be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is all over the book of Acts. They are being guided, listening to the Holy Spirit guide them into how does it look like. Remember, they don't have the New Testament like you and I do, to read and see the inspired word of God. They've got the oral preaching of the disciples here and there, now and then, and they've got the spirit to guide them. They're listening to the spirit on what they know. So, Peter and John are preaching in Jerusalem. Jesus has been raised from the dead. They've seen Jesus, he's ascended to heaven, and they start to preach, and all kinds of Jews start to become Christians. They say, repent. The kingdom of God is here. The son of God has died so that you may be reconciled with God. Thousands and thousands of Jews are coming to them. Well, needless to say, this is a problem for the government. Government says, okay, this could be a problem because who knows what these people are gonna tell. It's gonna be disruptive. And so they bring them in once and they basically uh, arrest them, bring them before the Sanhedrin. This would be like you and I going before the Senate or before the Supreme Court. Like they're intimidated. You know, they're just common fishermen and they're before the most powerful people. There are guards there that have brought them here. I mean, they're under arrest, right? And so they couldn't figure out exactly what to do with them, but here's what they said. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now this is mission critical, isn't it? What's one of the last things Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 28? Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is not pay a tax, this is mission critical, like don't, don't do what Jesus told you to do. It's like, well, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. So they let them go, they keep preaching, more people come to Christ, they arrest them again, and this time they beat them and say, surely this will get your attention. And and the scripture says they left rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. I mean, what do you do with that? You can't defeat that. You can't squelch that. You can't squelch it in North Korea. You can't squelch it in China. You can't squelch it in Afghanistan. You cannot stop that. People that are completely dedicated to Jesus Christ and are not afraid to die because they know I have eternal life in heaven with God. I'm gonna be faithful and you can kill me if you want to. You can beat me if you want to. But you can't stop that. That is unstoppable. That's how the Roman Empire was conquered, not by force of arms, but by people who were willing to die and did in the hundreds of thousands. And yet, God uses that. So I want you to understand that the relationship with the government isn't just one-sided, like forget the government, go about your business, everything will be fine. There are times when you will be in conflict with governmental authorities. So let's take a look a little further on Acts chapter 14. The Apostle Paul is a great example because he has a lot of interactions with government. If my recollection is right, of all the interactions he had with the government, and there are many, I'll show you a few, only one was ever positive. And so I want to draw some lessons out of this, but let's go to the first journey. He and Barnabas decide, let's go travel around and do what Jesus told us. Let's go preach the good news. And so they do. And this is a map of that first, what's called Paul's first missionary journey. You know what it really is? It's first crusade it's the it's like a Billy Graham crusade but it's a Paul the Apostle Paul crusade he's just going around preaching everywhere he goes big towns little towns doesn't matter so he comes in what is now Turkey up here to Iconium and the people of the city were divided after they preached I'm just giving you a little excerpts some sided with the Jews the Jews were mad that they were preaching about Jesus they thought that was heretical and they wanted to run him out of town but so many people, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, not Jews, believed. That there's power in the word. And, you know, God loves you and his son died so that you can be reconciled. You need to repent of your sins and uh, be baptized and God will make you new. Oh, a, a powerful. So there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders. So this is a government deal to mistreat them and to stone them. Stoning, you probably know what stoning is, but stoning was a way of executing people, and it was very informal, required very little uh, in the way of equipment. You just picked up a stone and threw at somebody till they were dead. Okay, it's it's not pleasant, but it has at least uh, the benefit of not being very complicated. And so they decided, we're just gonna find them, we're gonna get a crowd, we're gonna go, and we're gonna kill them, and we're gonna solve our problem and the government says, sounds good to us. Let's not bother with the trial. You know how expensive those trials are. So, but they found out about it, and they fled to the cities of Lister and Derby and to the surrounding country, and they continued to preach the good news. And by the way, good news is gospel. That's literally the word there is gospel. So they continued to preach. So they weren't going to stop because the government was gonna kill them for it, but they didn't stay in town, right? And that's why if you're in North Korea, you're not gonna stop being a Christian, but you probably aren't going to a building on Sunday where it would be really easy to be arrested. And so what you see there is, is the mission is, is not negotiable. The methods, where you meet, when you meet, what town you're gonna preach in next, that's, that is negotiable. So that's what happens. So they go on to the city of Lystra nearby, and then on to Derby, and I wanna take you to Lystra Show you what happens next. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They're preaching in Lystra, and people are like, wow, this is powerful. Yes, we're gonna be Christians. Some of the people in Iconium said, oh my gosh, they just went next door. These fools, are, they're still preaching. I can't believe this. We gotta go over there and stop this. So they come, and they stirred people up and won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul and dragged his body outside the city thinking he was dead. Now, I just need to pause here for a second and make two observations. Number one, if you're gonna be a Christian, you need a good health plan, all right? And I don't know what Paul had, maybe he had a PPO or something, but he needed a really good health plan. Luke wrote the book of Acts, Luke traveled with Paul, and Luke was a doctor. Coincidence? I don't think so. I think God supplies all our needs. And Paul's was, you need a doctor, on call. And so they stone him. Now, my second observation is this. These are people that are a little closer to nature than you and I. You may or may not have ever seen someone die. God forbid, I hope that you have not. Uh, Or even an animal die or be killed. They had. Here's my point. How badly do you have to be hurt that the people around you think, well, he's dead. I mean, stop and think about that for just a second. Because sometimes we blitz through this And and they stoned him and they thought he was dead and they dragged him out of the city. How bad a shape do you have to be in that they actually think you're dead? No, he's still breathing, let's hit him again. They thought he was dead, they drag him outside the city and just leave his body out there. Third observation I wanna make. Oh, spoiler, he was not dead, he gets up, goes back into the city, and the next day, he and Barnabas went to Derby, the next door town, and they preached again. You can't stop this. It's not possible. And so he goes on and he preaches again. But my third observation is this. If this had happened to you, or let's just say, let me just tell you how it would play for me. I went into a town, I started preaching, some people came up and they roughed me up a little bit. I would take more than two verses to tell you about that. Do you, you see what I'm getting at? How incidental does this have to be to your mission that you, can afford, you can't afford to do more than two sentences? I mean, if I'm writing this, you know what I'm saying? They thought I was dead, they left me to kill. My hip was killing me, and oh, the headache. Did I mention the headache that I had? And the blood, oh my God, 14 stitches in my elbow. Did I tell you that my knee's never been the same? And. Then I got up and I went back in town. Oh, that was painful. I had to limp. A couple of guys had to carry me at the end. And then we went on. And you know, honestly, I didn't get over that for a while. I had PT. I had physical therapy for six months after that. I mean, that's how this story goes if it's you and me. What does your life have to be like that the best you can whip it up is a couple of verses? Literally, two verses. Oh, stoned me, thought I was dead, took me outside. I got up, disciples took me back, bandaged my wounds, and off I go to preach again. Powerful. So the, the things that are happening with the government here are largely negative. Let's go on one more. Philippi, this fast forward to the second journey. Oh, he not only did that and went home, he did it again. He does this four times before he gets arrested and gets his head cut off. But oh, I shouldn't have told you the end of the story. Now you're not gonna read the book of Acts, are you? I'm sorry, I spoiled that for you. But seriously, he goes on the second trip to Philippi, over here on the map, that in, was in Macedonia then, guess what, it's still in Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. So far he's been in trouble with the Jewish authorities and then the civil magistrates. This is a Roman colony, these are Roman authorities. And so what happened here, I'll tell you the story that leads us to the little piece I wanna talk about, is they go into Philippi and they begin to preach and man, people again get converted. It gets so bad that it begins to affect the economics of the city. I mean, so many people become Christian and a certain thing happens there that it begins to affect the economics and the powerful people start complaining to the authorities and say, look, we gotta shut these guys up. And now, have they done anything wrong? No, have they uh, violated the law? No, they have not. Do they get a trial? No, they do not. So the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. This word, NIV doesn't really do justice to that. It's beaten with rods. This is a Roman punishment. That's how you know that they're in trouble with the Roman authorities here. After they've been severely flogged. By the way, I don't know if you've ever been flogged. I've not, have no desire to ever be flogged. I don't even want, after a light flogging, You know, after a regular flogging, I mean, a severe flogging, I mean, flogging, People died from this because, I mean, come on, it's just not you know, antiseptic, right? Uh, but bottom line, you died from blood loss and all. So after severe flogging, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in the stocks. And this story is a great ending, by the way. You should go read the rest of the story if you don't already know it. But here's my point. What, what trend are you seeing? You're seeing the trend with Jesus and the early disciples that the Spirit had them on mission. You could not stop them from being about their mission. Jesus said, that tax is not fair, it's not just, it's not reasonable, pay the tax, we have a mission. The disciples, when the government said, I'm gonna do something and you can't preach anymore, they said, can't do that. We're gonna continue to preach. The Apostle Paul being intimidated, threatened, beaten, stoned by the authorities, just goes to another town and does it again. Why? Because that's what he's called to do. You remember the the quote I told you from Mother Teresa? She said, I was not called to be successful. I was called to be faithful. And the point is, the spirit is responsible for the outcomes, for the success. We're called to be faithful. So let me summarize this. I wanna give you a, a... Summary of the other side. So, you might assume that based on what I've just told you, that man, it's hard going for the Word of God. I bet the church is struggling. That's actually not the case. Here are just some smatterings from the book of Acts. So, the Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of even the priests became obedient to the faith. Again, Another time, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, who began to destroy the church, and he went from house to house and he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. However, listen to what it says. Those, by the way, who were scattered and forced to leave their home, they preached the word wherever they went. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Again, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples there were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. The end of the book of Acts. For two whole years, Paul was under arrest, awaiting a death sentence, stayed there in his own rented house, welcomed everybody that came to see him, boldly and without hindrance. I mean, you're under arrest. What else can they do to you? Without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of the book of Acts and what happens during the tenure of the book of Acts is the church explodes. Isn't that interesting? Because if you had just read the first few things I showed you to say, whoa, they are persecuting these Christians. I'll bet they shut this thing down. They didn't shut it down. In fact, it exploded. So here's the summary. A couple of lessons out of this. First, government action affected the disciples. Well, okay, that may be an understatement. If you're getting stoned and you're getting beaten, you're getting shipwrecked. I mean, all kinds of things. Of course it affected them, but listen to the story here but was largely incidental to the mission, the growth, and the story of the church. This is the lesson of the book of Acts. This lesson also plays out in history, by the way, but I wanna stay in the biblical witness for this, but you'll see this play out over and over again. That's why when the church is persecuted, it actually tends to grow. I mean, you get rid of the chaff, you know, parable of the sower, people have said, oh, I believe, but uh, no, not that much, right? the church actually grows. Why is that? Well, you see that in Acts. Even though the government was trying to stamp this thing out and then beyond Acts for the next 200 years, the Romans get brutal about stamping this out. And yet, look at the book of Acts ends on a good note and it says, man, the church is thriving. That's interesting, isn't it? And the conclusion is that government action, as much as big a deal as it seems at the time, is largely incidental to the mission of the church and the success of the church and the story of the church and the growth of the church. And that's not intuitive, is it? That's where you need to step back and take a view because when you're in the middle of it, you think, oh my gosh, the government's gonna take away all of our uh, right to religious speech or the government's going to shut down all our Christian institutions or the government's gonna do this, the government's gonna do that. And that seems like a big deal at the time and it is. I mean, if you'd ask Paul, hey, how was that stoning thing? He goes, yeah, that was a low point. But it didn't change the success of the church. That's the lesson, is that governments are are more than we think, largely incidental to what's happening. Why? Because we do not rely on the, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. We do not rely on power and might and government institutions or rulers or leaders to accomplish our mission. Can they be helpful? Sure, can they be a hindrance? Sure, but the lesson, the perspective is, they cannot stop this, no matter what. And as bad as sometimes we think our government may be in America, it seems like we're always complaining about our government, Which, are whatever the government is, as bad as we think it may be, I guarantee you it doesn't hold a candle to the Roman Empire and the ability of the Roman Empire to, to persecute Christians doesn't hold a candle to, the, I keep mentioning North Korea and China, pick them, a, uh, a, a really hostile Muslim nation, pick any number of places, you know, Indonesia, pick any of these places. Bottom line, the governments there have way more power to, to punish Christians and do, and yet that doesn't stop Christianity at all. It's largely incidental to the mission. Oops, one more lesson. The believers trusted the work of the Spirit and became, this is really crucial for us as individuals, became comfortable not knowing or controlling the outcome of specific situations. This is a lesson from Acts. So many times, as Paul starts on that journey, all he actually knows is that he's probably gonna get beat up somewhere along the line. He doesn't know how it's gonna turn out He doesn't know if he'll find favorable response, unfavorable response, good government, bad government, neutral government would be good, you know, just leave me alone, let me preach. He doesn't have any idea how it's gonna turn out. And you see the early Christians the same way, and you think, you know, it's bad enough being persecuted, but the idea of not knowing how this is gonna turn out. If you have power and control, the reason we seek control in our lives, this is a duh kind of a statement, is so that we can control outcomes and lower anxiety, fear, and anxiety. I mean, this is not complicated psychologically. We try to control our spouse, we try to control our friends, we try to control our money, we try to control our government, we try to control things. Why do we try to control them? Not all of us are, um, you know, megalomaniacs. What we're trying to do is we have. Anxiety because of the uncertainty about how things are gonna turn out. We have fear that it won't turn out the way we want it to turn out. And so we try to control. Politics is one way we try to do that. We're like, ooh, are we gonna be able to speak the gospel? Am I gonna be able to keep my job if I'm a Christian? Am I gonna have, oh my gosh, in history, people, they confiscated Christians' bank accounts in their houses, is that gonna happen to me? I'm scared, I'm afraid, I'm anxious, and I want some kind of assurance, some kind of control, and sometimes we reach into the political realm to get that because that's what our culture tells us you do. If you want security, you need a lot of money and a lot of power, and you definitely need political power, right? Well, for Christians, the, the really great lesson in the book of Acts is they had no political power They largely had no money. They were not well-funded. Paul didn't start out and said, okay, I've got a budget, I've raised my money, and here I am. Not that I'm against that, and I love funding our missionaries, but he just said, let's take off and we'll just see how this thing goes. If we need to be hungry. He said in another place, he said, I've been hungry more than you can imagine. I've been cold, I've been wet, I've been shipwrecked. In other words, he's like, we're gonna go do it and uh, it'll work out. We'll, We'll get enough food. We'll be hungry, we'll be thin, but look at us, aren't we swelt, you know? At least we lost some weight. But my point is, is he, he, he becomes comfortable, and so do all the early believers, knowing, you know, I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be fearful. It may not go the way I want, but it's going to go the way the Spirit of God wants it to go. And there's a powerful lesson from the book of Acts that I think is easy to say, hard to do, but this is faith in action, becoming comfortable that the Spirit is guiding this and not knowing or controlling the outcome is okay with us. Question Is it a different situation if the persecution comes from other religions that are hostile to Christianity? You know, the persecution of the Christians, by the way, the you know, question is does it make any difference where the persecution comes from, another religion, whatever? You know, it, it hasn't historically. I mean, there is nothing, there is no power on this earth, whether it's a government, whether it's a grouchy neighbor, whether it's another religion, it doesn't make any difference who tries to squelch the word of God because none of it is powerful enough. The spirit that is in you, John says, the Holy Spirit is greater than he that is in the world. So Christians have suffered persecution from more than just government. Obviously it's a politics series, so I'm focusing on that, but that's a great question. It doesn't really matter where the persecution comes from. Um, Isn't persecution by the government not only incidental but critical to the explosive growth of the church, the opposite of its intent? Is this not happening today? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. In other words, is persecution essential to growth? I'll try to give you this, you talk a lot about this, but I'll give you a relatively short answer. It may not be satisfactory. I I would not personally, this is an opinion, just based on history, is I would not say, first of all, persecution is inevitable. That's scriptural, that's not an opinion. Jesus said persecution will happen. Did that mean it's gonna happen to every single individual one of you, or it's gonna happen to the church over time? You know, I tend to think he meant, he wasn't guaranteeing that, oh, Terry, you'll be personally persecuted in your life. Not necessarily, but he's saying, this will broadly be the experience of the church and the world. If you're preaching my gospel, trust me, the church will be persecuted. That's a given. Secondly, is that persecution necessary for the success of the church? I think not, but that's an opinion. However, I would make this observation Every time that you see it, it backfires. So I understand that question. I wouldn't say it's necessarily essential to it that could the church grow without persecution? I think that's possible. Does the church grow in persecution? Every example I can think of is yes. Second thing, the flip side of that, just turn it over, does the church prosper with government that supports it? No, not necessarily. In other words, Christianity has gone off track, I would argue, has gone way farther off track under governments that were supportive than under governments that were persecuting it. I want you to think Crusades. I want you to think uh, Western Christianity, you know, in the 20th and 21st century. You largely have had governments that supported Christianity, and frankly, there's been more getting off track then but I wouldn't say it's causal. Persecution, things go well. Government that supports Christianity, things go worse. I'm not sure I'd make a causal connection, but I would make the observation that prosperity is more dangerous for Christians than persecution. I mean, that's not a pleasant thing to say, but it is, appears to be a historical reality. Do you have any advice for speaking with um, a Christian friend or family member who has found their identity in politics? Yes, that's, I don't know how much advice I have to, on okay, what should you say uh, to them, but you do find that Christians get wrapped up in things that are not the main thing, and it could be politics, it could be money, it could be, in other words, there are many idols. I would say, I just give you these two ground rules. Number one, have a little bit of compassion, not because what they're doing is necessarily right, if they're chasing an idol, say, you know, whatever it may be. Have some compassion that for people that get wrapped up in politics, the, if you dig down deep enough, you keep peeling back the layers, you're gonna get to fear and anxiety. That's most likely what this person is experiencing deep down. It may come out as anger and you know, just a harsh voice of this has to happen and those are bad people and this politics and who've been define my identity as, you know, I'm a Democrat or I'm a liberal or I'm a this or I'm a that or whatever. If you peel that back far enough, just have a little bit of compassion, and I think fear is at the base of that. Second piece of advice, so that'll soften our tone a little bit, right, with folks like that. But again, I would say call people back to the main thing and say how is this fulfilling the mission of the church and try to draw it back to the main mission. And it's not an easy thing, and I don't have a, a solution to say, well, say these words and it'll happen, but the point is have a little compassion because ultimately that's fear underneath all that anger. And secondly, uh, draw us back to the main mission. Let's, let's redirect it towards, instead of being against political involvement, at least at that level, let's be for pursuing the cause of Christ, okay? So, a few takeaways. I wanna spend a little time here. First. It's okay to be concerned because even the early disciples were concerned about political events. They had no, very little control over them. And I think by now, even in America, you're realizing we have as much control over our leaders as any other form of government ever, ever. And yet you probably are starting to feel a little powerless, right? Like we really don't have much control over you know, some of the things that are happening to us. That's okay, that's the way early Christians were. Is some of that concerning? Yes, it is, because some people are gonna get hurt by that. Bad policies hurt people, so it is a concern. But I would stop short of anxiety, because when you move into anxiety, you begin to take on things that aren't our job. In other words, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the outcome of this. I'm responsible to be faithful in the midst of this. So I would say concern is justified and speaking, speaking out for the, uh, what's right, what's just, what's fair, what's reasonable. The fact that we can do it means we definitely should do it. But when we move into anxiety, that's a concern to us because what it says is, I've now taken on things I can't control because that's what anxiety is. People that have no power Everybody sees this in mission trips, by the way. If you ever in high school, you went on a mission trip, I remember going on, oh, one of many, but every time I've gone on a mission trip with people to third world countries and we're building houses or we're doing a medical clinic or whatever we're doing, people come back and uh, the high school students especially are the best because they come back and they realize those people have nothing and look at how happy they are, or look at how faithful they are, or look at something, and it just draws, it draws this discordant picture that, oh my goodness, having all this stuff doesn't, isn't the key to this. That's my point about this. Being concerned about something is one thing, but being anxious says, I now think that's a main thing. I now think that I need to control that for things to work out well. That's stepping over into the spirit's business. So concern is warranted, but anxiety I think is not engage issues without losing sight of our allegiance or mission it's easy to get drawn into the partisanship because when you speak about an issue there's maybe a 50 50 chance that you're going to align with some political party uh, i don't know let's I, I hate to take an. everything's so partisan it's hard to even find an example let me give you a simple example and that is suppose you're a christian and you say, you know, we have a lot of people that don't have health care, and we want to do something about it. And by the way, if I can, I'm going to vote for uh, health care for everybody. Now, you may say that's wise. That's not wise. Just don't don't nitpick my example here. What I'm just trying to say is, you might find that your mission of caring for people puts you in alignment with this party on this issue. And tomorrow, or on a different issue, you may find that you align with this. Because the point is, I am not part of either one of them. I mean, I may have to register R or D or marijuana party, or sorry, that just tickled me. I can't get over the marijuana party, and so I can go vote, but I don't identify with any, I'm not, my identity is not as a D or an R or an I. My identity is I'm about Christ's business. Remember, Christ didn't come to take a side, he came to take over, and so, but when you find yourself in alignment on an issue, or three, or four, or five, It is tempting then to identify yourself in that game that we call politics as I play on this side. I think we should avoid that. I think that we need to engage issues without losing sight that our allegiance is always, first, last, always to the cause of Christ. That means truth, grace, love. In other words, that is always our allegiance and our allegiance isn't found in any particular party. Third, our sufficiency in Christ allows us to advocate for others. So I wanna come back to that in a minute because that's one that I hope will give you a lot of peace. But one of the things I thought I would talk about here because it, this is a good time to talk about this is I've avoided getting into specific issues because, not because I don't think the Bible speaks about certain uh, social issues that are hot button topics it's just not the most important thing i want to talk about what i want to talk about is how are we going to be guided by the spirit to be in the world but not of the world how are we going to like jesus be playing on this game board but not be playing the same game once we understand that a lot of other things are going to fall into place but one of the ways i want to suggest and this is like a little aside and then i'm going to come back to this lesson but Since we've talked about the early church, we've talked about politics being incidental to what the church's mission. I wanna use that framework to give you an example. One of the most frequently asked questions that we've gotten in this series is about the specific issue of abortion. The issue of abortion, uh, let's just say in America, is a moral issue that has also become a political issue. This has been a moral issue for, well, gosh, probably, I'm thinking ancient sources that I've read at least 2,000 years, 2,500 years. It's been a moral issue. It has not been a political issue until relatively recently in human history, but it is now a moral issue and it is a political issue. So the question is, what should the church think about abortion? What should Christians think about abortion? What does the Bible say about abortion? And I wanna answer only one of those and I wanna take it from a biblical point of view. And I wanna tell you how Christians have thought this through. The Bible is the source of truth. It is the inspired word of God. And that, is es- that understanding is essential to being a Christ follower. It is the revealed word of God. We worship Jesus Christ, but everything you know about Jesus Christ comes from his revelation to us, right? that you find in the New Testament. This is true, and that is our basis. We also look to how has the church understood that scripture from the very beginning. And so on this issue, let me just kind of walk you through a way of thinking about this. From the very earliest time of the scriptures, the scriptural teaching both in the Old Testament and the New Testament on the sanctity of life Humans being created in the image of God led the early church and Christians throughout history until relatively very recent time has this become an issue in the Christian church. But from the very earliest time, Christians read the scriptures and understood the sanctity of life to be opposed to the idea of abortion. One of the earliest Christian writings outside the Bible... I mean, this is written, I think, right around 100 A.D., and it was a book that was written by Christians for new Christians, and it gives you a bunch of instructions on you know, what we believe, how you're baptized, uh, how you should live a Christian life. I mean, it heavily quotes the Bible. It's, all, it's a very Christian book. It's sort of like a, a popular Christian book by a Christian author that uses a lot of Scripture to help talk to you, and one of the things it says is that do not abort a child, or commit infanticide. What I'm saying to you is that the record and the witness of of the scripture and the early church is that the early church understood the sanctity of life to mean that abortion and infanticide were not permissible. And that has been the position and the understanding of Christians until very recent times. Now, some might say to me that, but Terry, we're really talking about abortion, we're not talking about infanticide. And my answer to that would be, wait, this won't go anywhere good. In fact, I suspect that the end of this process of, of abortion and the countenance of that uh, amongst, if it indeed happens amongst us, will lead us to places where appalling things will happen that, he, that we are absolutely appalled by. The early church, in fact, through the centuries, was not only understood the scriptures to prohibit that, they also did something that uh, is really instructive to us. In Greek and Roman times, this is before Jesus Christ, after Jesus Christ, it was pretty common practice, it was a moral issue, but it was pretty common practice to when children were born, if they were not wanted or they were malformed, birth defects. They, what The phrase in Latin is they would expose the child. What this means is you would take that child and you take them to literally the city dump and you would toss them on the trash heap and they would die of exposure. I mean, that's why they... There was a euphemism you know we're going to expose the child meaning we're throwing the kid away kid's going to die we're done i didn't, didn't want the kid you know it was a girl i wanted a boy as a boy i wanted a girl or this child has birth defects very common practice in the ancient world christians not only understood the text to prohibit that amongst christians what they did was when they found those children they took them home and raised those children that's what the early church did so as far as what have the biblical testimony the tradition and witness of the church throughout almost all of the history up till now what has been the position is that the sanctity of life says that for christians abortion infanticide those kinds of things are not in keeping with God's word. But the point I wanna make is, they actually went a little further than that. They spent a lot less time criticizing people who did that because they had no political power to change it. Now you may say we do and that means something different for us, that's fine. The point I wanna make is simply this. There was no chance that they were gonna outlaw that or keep that from happening. They spent a lot less time criticizing the non-Christians who did those things than they did taking those children home and raising them and aiding those children. And so I think that witness of the early church is twofold. It's not just a matter of belief, that's clear, but the lesson from the scriptures in the early church is it's a matter of practice. What will we do? Let's fast forward to us. For us, We also live in a culture that in many different ways all too frequently throws our children onto trash heaps. And I'm talking about a variety of practices in our culture. And we as Christians can speak the truth just like Christians did before about those issues, but they didn't spend as much time on and put as much hope in that because they knew there was no chance of changing it but they acted, and I think for us that while we will speak the truth, this is not an either or, this is a both and, we will speak truth, and I think the most productive thing we can do is aid the people, aid those children that have been thrown onto the trash heaps. And I think you see this happening in the church with uh, adoption and foster care and speaking out for those who cannot speak for themselves. So I don't know if that's helpful to you or not, but I, the method I'd like us to go through is to the scripture and let's look at the early church and what they did. A lot of these people in the book of Acts did exactly what I'm telling you. Christians would go to the dump, they'd see a child that was still alive and they would take the child and they would take them home. This is A lot of what Mother Teresa was doing in Calcutta, by the way, in the 20th century, is finding kids that were abandoned, that were exposed, that weren't wanted, whether it's because of poverty or because of something else, and she would take them and she would care for them. Most of them died in Calcutta. And her point was this. It isn't important whether or not they die. They're in God's hands. I can't control the outcome. But none of them are gonna die without being loved if only for an hour. And so my message to you is there's truth and there's practice and let's use the scriptures and the witness of, the, of Christians throughout the millennia to basically put those two things together. So I would say that speaking the truth on this issue without acting is of very little help. And acting without speaking the truth is not being faithful to people. And so I think that's a as you think about these hot button issues, this is a good way to look at it. What did the scripture say? How did the church understand it? And how did the church put that into practice? There's a reason that you have the book of Acts. There's a reason that you can see the witness of Christians throughout time. Make sense? Okay. So the last takeaway is our sufficiency in Christ allows us to advocate for others. This is really important because politics is one of those things that gets us back into a me-centric attitude. It just does. Right? When you say something happens, like, oh my gosh, you mean I won't be able to do this anymore or I'm being forced to do that or we are being persecuted and I'm being persecuted. Again, I'm not saying it's unnatural to have that reaction. I'm just saying it brings us into ourselves a little bit. Here's the beauty of becoming comfortable that the Holy Spirit will control the outcome and I don't have to. I just have to be faithful and we win, I read the last chapter in the book, and we win, you know, so relax. That we don't have to play out that anxiety that way. One of the beauties of that is, is that since I have sufficiency in Christ, I no longer, unlike my neighbors, need everything to work out the way I want it to work out. I literally am going to trust Jesus Christ, whatever happens. Means you are now free to advocate for others. Because that doesn't very often happen in our, in our culture. I know that there are a lot of people out there saying, I'm here standing up for so-and-so. Yeah, I'm. call me a cynic on that one. Uh, I think most of that is tainted by self-interest in some way. Christians don't have to have self-interest. Your sufficiency in Christ means you are completely free to go advocate for others. And I like to see us, this is an opinion now, I like it when you see us out there advocating for people who can't advocate for themselves. And so I like it when we're engaging in political issues and causes that aren't necessarily for me. Oh, I know what my mission is, and I could do my mission whether you like it or not. The worst you can do is kill me. Been doing that for centuries and it doesn't work. But I need to speak for some of these people that can't speak for themselves. Does that make sense? I love it when we're engaged in politics that way. I'm not saying it's wrong, to engage in other ways, but I love to see us engaged in that way. And here's why you can do that. This is the one I want to close with. I really want you to think about this. You should read this verse every day. You should think about it and come and we'll talk about it in 10 years. I mean, literally, you need to let this soak in. Paul says this, this is the guy that got stoned. This is the guy that got beaten. This is the guy that just got up, went to the next town, preached again, and has no idea how this is going to turn out. I mean, for all he knows, after he dies, the church is gone. He's like, not my problem, not my issue. The Holy Spirit's gonna take care of that. Here's what he said. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. You definitely do, Paul. And I know what it is to have plenty. I doubt that you know that like we know that. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What is that? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Who's he referring to? That's a good translation. Sometimes I say, I can do all things through Christ. Not what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit that lives within me, the Christ, the Lord that I serve, and the God who is sovereign over everything. I can do everything he asks me to do on his power. I don't need a government. I don't need good health. I don't, there are a lot of things I don't need, and that's my point. We are sufficient in Jesus Christ. We're free to advocate for people that can't advocate for themselves. We're free from anxiety. I understand this isn't a snap your fingers and it happens, but the more we adopt this mindset of the scriptures in the early church, the freer and more effective we'll be in the public square, politics as well. Next time, we'll finish this series up. I wanna talk about the fruit of the spirit. I wanna talk about how you can actually find love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control and what that will have, what effect that will have on the culture in which we live. Thank you guys, I'll see you next time.